Hello and welcome back to the Book of the Week podcast here on the Literary Salon. It's me, Damien Barr, bringing you another one of the books that we are most excited about. And this week, it's a name to conjure with, a name you will recognise is Sebastian Barry. Now, Sebastian won the Costa for Days Without End. Remember the days when we had a Costa? So my expectations were high for his new novel, and he doesn't disappoint. When does he ever? The novel is called Old God's Time, and as so often, he focuses on a story that is forgotten. Forgotten is such an innocuous verb, isn't it? Um, Overlooked, no. How about uh, intentionally swept under the rug? Yes, this is a story of a history that has been hidden. It opens with a retired police officer called Tom being asked for his help on a new case involving the murder of a priest. And as so often is the case in fiction, the present is a portal to the past. Tom is forced to relive his own personal history, which is harrowing and involves child abuse um, by members of the Catholic Church. So he's haunted by his own suffering at the hands of priests and it looks not just at him, but also his family and the wider community. So it's one of those novels that works on a number of different levels at the same time. Tom is also suffering from some kind of early onset dementia. At least there is something where the past feels raw and very present um, and there's a slippage in time and also between what he imagines and, and what he remembers. So the book takes us into Tom's memory, takes us into Tom's past and through Tom we see the texture and colours of the Irish Sea. Childhood and early life is brought back to life in only the way that childhood can be. It's so immersive and it's so atmospheric. Old God's time is deeply affecting. The lyrical language takes the edge off the violence but never neuters it, it lends it a real kind of power. It's all about guilt, it's all about frustration, it's all about injustice, but it's also ultimately about justice. That doesn't give away the ending. Douglas Stewart, the Booker Prize winner, a friend of the salon, he's been a guest with us twice, describes the novel as being full of love and heartache, an unforgettable novel from one of our finest writers. Douglas Stewart is not wrong. Here's Sebastian Barry with a reading. My name is Sebastian Barry, and I'm very happy to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, Old God's Time. This section I'm going to read occurs quite early in the book, and it concerns our main character, Tom Kettle. Tom is a retired police officer, and he's just spent nine relatively calm months in his new digs beside the sea in Dorky. But just the day before, he's been visited by two officers from his old division, seemingly looking for help with an old case. This is the next day, and he is very discombobulated by the visit, for reasons we don't know yet. Uh, He throws on his old black coat and goes outside to see if he can shake off whatever it is that's assailing him. Initially, he's quite comforted by the fact that after the great storm the night before, 
There's a little bit of sunlight now mixing uh, with the showers and the wind, but that doesn't last long. So here we go. The rain that had drenched the branches of the trees had lost heart, but the wind still pulled greedily at what was already there, making the drops fly at him, fly at everything, the sunlight inserting gleams and glimmers into them like a million silver sprat. Suddenly he wasn't so sure. He was briefly enraged, as if he were someone only in charge of himself and not himself, like he was a patient, a lunatic out for a constitutional. Then he was despondent, his boots growing heavier, his soul weighted like a handicap of lead weights on a racehorse. Oh, the good Jesus! Was he happy or wretched? Was he ruined or saved? He had no idea. What was to become of him? What was the use of him? What use was he to Winnie or Joseph? What use to suffering man? Then he stopped on the drenched pavement and put his hands to his face and cried again with sobs and shudders in a diluted sunlight. His unknown neighbours gazing out at him as maybe a lump of a creature in a black coat. Somewhere in there was a famous food writer. Somewhere in there, the architect of modern Ireland, so he had been told by the postmistress in the village. Had he not been a competent detective? Had he not been appreciated for his deductive skill, his intuition, his sudden inspirations? He had, at least he thought, he thought sincerely, he had. No one ventures out to see a mere retired man. Retired men are to go to the devil, into the final dark, let the waters close over their heads, unless they have curious gifts, rare gifts. He hoped it was so. Even as he wept, he hoped it was so, but he had rejected Wilson and O'Casey. He had spurned their bracing curiosity, their questions, their very ambulatory efforts to reach him, to reach the bloody hermit, perched on his wicker chair, the beloved wicker chair, the exaltations of Dorky. One day, dolphins rising. One day, the whole stretch between his refuge and the island gone silver with the tiny fish that mackerel risk everything to devour. Trillions, trillions, the dorky darkness that even in its pitch blackness had a peculiar brilliance, a shining aura like basil stone. Oh, oh, the world was too difficult for him. It was. No. Wretched lie, lying to himself like a maniac, like a dark criminal with crimes too wretched to admit to, even to himself. He had thrown their interest back at them. He had acted like a salted slug. He had, it was not professional, it was not even human or admirable. But how could he have done otherwise? Their coming had unmoored him, unsettled him, terrified him. Yes, terrified. Their coming out was an act of terror. But how could they know that? Their intentions were so good. They deserved bloody medals for them. The innocence, the sheer goodness of them, of bloody what's-his-name, the chief 
Fleming, bloody Fleming, I'll send you out to Tom Kettle, good, sane, clear-headed Tom, with a whole citadel, a museum of experience in his head. He'll set this to rights, give us a heads up, a way forward, a good steer, a helping hand. Most excellent, most treasured Detective Sergeant Thomas Kettle, the cream of the coppers, the heart of the rowel. What a transgression, what a betrayal. It was not good. He must cry now, cry copiously, into the flying raindrops, into the fleeting sunlight. He had thought to go on up to Sorrento Park, to clear his head among the peculiar boulders and the trees that the salt wind kept small and stooped. There were two parks at the top of the hill, Dillon's and Sorrento, and both had their uses as medicine. Go on as before, his little routine, the little routine of a retired man. He had thought to do so, but shaken now, shaken, hurt, not calmed at all. He turned back again, hurrying, and took refuge, confused and panicking, in his quarters. He stood there in his living room, dripping. It was as if he were standing there for the first time, alien somehow, unknown, animal-like, his bits and pieces refusing to talk to him, communicate any sense of home. He didn't know what to do. He wished Winnie, but Winnie was dead. Why did he talk as if she were still alive? Winnie was dead. Joseph murdered in Albuquerque. His wife, June, dead, dead. What was wrong with him that he couldn't acknowledge his dead ones? Couldn't tell Wilson and O'Casey with an easy grown-up voice the little stories of their fates? Couldn't say why the contents of those reports assailed him even before he could read them? Couldn't read them. Couldn't in any sense read them. Under any circumstances read them. He dragged off his coat as if it were a mental hindrance and let it drop to the floor. Winnie's admonishing voice seemed to leak out of the beauty board. He went back in to the rusty cupboard where he knew there was a length of rope. Any fool could tie a noose. It was the simplest knot in the world. Then he found himself wandering foolishly about the flat, trying to find something to tie the rope to. In the kitchen, there was a bracket where the ceiling met the wall. What it had been for, he didn't have an idea. Onions, maybe, or some sort of vanished kitchen machine, or the pin that held the universe in its place. But he didn't think it would hold his weight. There was nothing else that he could see. He had the noose about his neck, trailing the rope like an umbilical cord, and he was walking about looking. He was embarrassed in front of himself. He stood at the picture window, and the sea was a million grey dinner plates below, surging in the channel, spinning and dipping, each one a circus trick, a clown's trick, spin a plate on a stick. Duffy Circus, circa 19 what? Was that a memory? Dinner plates, dinner plates, exactly like that. The curious effect caught his attention just for a few moments. Then he saw the little boy who had arrived at Christmas with his mother to the turret flat come running into view. He had some sort of unusual stick in his hand, a black cane with a silver knob, like Fred Astaire might use for dancing. He was fl- 
flailing it about in the wind. The square of hedges around the sheltered spot that Mr. Tomalty had created, or an earlier owner, was bending and shuddering like a circle of powerful horses, threshing the bitter grain of life. The little boy was soundless because the window was closed, but Tom adjudged he must be singing. The child was now twirling himself all about, as if the cane had not been enough of a thing to be twirling, in his short trousers, happy in the wind, the cold, oblivious. Tom went back into the kitchen, still trailing the damn rope. He felt an absolute surge of violence in himself, of the kind he knew that was responsible for great crimes. But he had no wish to commit great crimes. Instead, he banged and banged on the table, assaulting the grey-green formica as if it had done him ferocious wrong. He banged on it, he banged on it, but stopped just on the cusp of breaking it. He hovered there with an aching effort of self-control. He mustn't forget, Mr. Tomalty, he thought. You must respect the person's property. It was a golden rule. It was the yardstick of the civic guards, as he tried to explain to his friend Ramesh twenty years before. He was pouring with sweat as he admonished himself. The peace of the country, the safety of the citizen, the inviolability of property. This for Micah Table, which would have set Mr. Tomarty back six or seven quid in Woolworths, was sacred. He must not cause it permanent damage. A wretched artifact, factory made, but it was not his. Sweat oozed down his face, stinging his eyes, blinding him. He yearned to let his fists crash down and destroy the little table, like Samson slaying a Philistine with the jawbone of a donkey. He was standing there, his fists raised, with something indeed of the suffering of Samson in him, thinking this, arrested, with the noose around his neck, when the doorbell rang again. That was Sebastian Barry with a pitch-perfect reading from Old God's Time. His latest novel is published by Faber and it's available now in all good bookshops. You can order yourself a lovely exclusive signed edition, which is available only to indie bookshops while supplies last. And you can get that from Booka Bookshop, that's spelled B-O-O-K-A. And we will leave a link for you in the description. If you know any Sebastian Barry fans, then please do share this episode with them as it is a book they will not want to miss. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.